Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Ordinary Hero podcast. Today, I'm here with Eric Forsberg. Eric Forsberg is um, a family friend of mine. He's an amazing guy. He's insanely smart. Um, he owns a business um, called Novak Conversions. Uh, I'm a new employee there, and I love working there. He's an amazing boss, so um, I hope you guys can pick up maybe some leadership values there and just kind of see the type of guy Eric is. Um, he's got a really interesting background that I hope we can tap into a little bit so Eric why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself growing up maybe um where you lived that type of thing oh thanks for having me and I'm a little more a lot more ordinary and a lot less hero so <laughs> <laughs> and and we'll have to bring up the um the conflict of interest that since you worked for me you had to say all those nice things but no it's very generous <laughs> and I appreciate it you it um well let's see would you should we, should we get into some background is yeah. that go ahead just tell me about your upbringing and Maybe if you went to college somewhere. Yeah, that. well, absolutely. Well, I'm kind of an Intermountain West guy. I was, I'm, I'm, I feel very at home in this region, mm-hmm. and uh, I was raised in a small town of around 300 people, mm-hmm. uh, called Lake Town, um, and it was uh, a really, I, as I look back on it now, I think a really unique childhood. Mm-hmm. You have a very small community, and yet I still had a lot of, a lot of opportunities to kind of get out and see the world a little bit. I would take trips to California and do, do other things like that. Um, and I get, yeah, you don't realize how, um, I don't know, unique a, a place like that is until you get out into the big world. In a way, it was like living 20 years in, in the past. And then I'd go to a place like California, which was very kind of progressive and, you know, in terms of technology and mindset and whatever. And then you were 20 years in the future. Right. So I kind of felt like I was jumping between worlds a little bit. But I think that prepared me a little bit for, I guess, what we would call <laughs> Middle Earth, right? Where we you know, come to a place like Logan, where it's neither big nor small. Right. And uh, anyway, I think that was it was valuable for me. It was a farming community. Um, yet on the other hand, I had, you know, a place, it was, it was a place that was rich in history and was kind of living in the old world. Um, there's a lot of pioneer heritage there. Um, there are a lot of old and aged people there who were telling me their stories. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, I would go and visit um, people and, my, and my, my parents and my dad especially were, were uh, was just really interested in, in, in people. And so for, because of that, I was able to hear their stories. Mm-hmm. And I knew a fellow who had been born in the late 1800s, and he would tell me stories. Wow. And, and how cool that was, right? Um, but yeah, so you have kind of this, uh, this little old town. But then um, I was one of the first kids in town to have a computer. Like a real, you know, what I don't know if you call it a PC, but it was a Commodore 64. And a buddy there in town and, and me, about the same age, we both got into programming. And this was around 1980, 81. Uh, our schools had received some kind of a grant, and we got a bunch of Commodore computers, and, and he and I took to that next level, bought our own. In fact, I remember going to California and spending $300 on this mm-hmm. computer, and, that was, and I saved every penny of it. Wow. And, of course, when you invest in something like that, mm-hmm. you, you use it to its full extent, and I did. And, and so I think that kind of gave me a bit of a head start into the world well, a world that I didn't know was coming, mm-hmm. but it certainly prepared me for the technological onslaught that would happen in the 80s and 90s and so on. Mm-hmm. So Lake Town, is that in Utah? Yeah, up in northern Utah. It's just at the south end of a lake. And it was, um, I guess, another thing that made it, I, I suppose, interesting was that we'd have, in the summer, a lot of tourists, people coming in from the outside, bringing their ideas, their styles, their chatter, their boats, their cars, their, you know, and so I got to see that, and then in the winter, they would all dissipate, and and it was just quiet, and mm-hmm. not much going on, except for the activities that we drummed up ourselves, so mm-hmm. um, it was kind of a rugged place to live, I remember it being very cold in the winter, brutally cold, and in the summers, our summers were very busy, and my parents, they were business people, they had a grocery store there. And it was so it was very kind of a touristy place in the summer and then kind of a critical place in the winter for people to get what they needed to not have to come over to the other side of the mountains to get what they what they were searching for. So um, so I got an early taste of business with my parents. They were good business people. They were good, fun parents. And anyway, I, I suppose it was a, 
a blessed childhood if ever there was one. But. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it. Um, so your uh, the grocery store. Did your parents own it? Did they start it? They owned it. They bought it in nineteen seventy seven. In fact, we lived in Providence for a short period of time, and then uh, I believe my dad saw it as a classified advertisement in the newspaper mm. store for sale, and uh, they. Uh, kind of renovated the place. It had been owned by one of the old townspeople and turned it into, um, you know, something a little more modern, but still had that old uh, that, that old style. And then they built their home into the top of it. It was a two-story stone building. And my dad was good at kind of everything. My mom was good at everything too, but my dad, um, they designed and built a home up in there. And it had been the old town cultural hall. So it was this big open space. It was like wow. open concept before open concept was a thing. Yeah. And uh, so it was kind of a charming place to grow up in. That's fascinating. And then if we needed something, if we needed groceries for the house, we'd just run down to the store and yeah. <laughs> get what we needed. So wow. So did you did you ever, I'm assuming you grew up working in the store? Did you work yeah. there? Yeah, yeah. We, a lot. Um, we worked stocking shelves and cleaning and dusting and maintenance um in the summer especially in the summer we ran a candy counter in there Mm -hmm. and it was this old school beautiful ornate glass um cabinet and and we had all the what were they called penny candy it was just individual bits of candy and and they were you know one to five cents depending and um and kids would just line up behind that candy counter and make their orders and we'd put them in a little brown bag and and you know the customers could also get you know sliced meats and vegetables and and things that my you know parents were in charge of but yeah so I got in kind of an early um taste of what it's like to be a merchant and mm-hmm. how has that transferred over to your business now maybe you could kind of briefly explain um maybe Novak and how it started yeah for sure um yeah and it's like Maybe as a side note, the funny thing is, is you don't know you you don't know in real time what is translating into what your experience is going to be. In other words, I didn't know that all this was leading up to what it was leading up to. Mm-hmm. I guess that's a forest for the trees kind of a mm-hmm. question, right? But um, Novak itself, and and well, let's go back to Lake Town. My dad, uh, being very handy, had an old Jeep Wagoneer. Um, and the motor went out on it, and he put another, a totally different brand of engine into it. And he, at the time, knew of the company that we ended up buying. So I kind of, I saw him working on things and being a mechanic and being mechanical. I myself was always taking things apart, not always putting them back together. But <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so um, many years later, when I had graduated from college... Uh, I made a phone call to a company and I met a fellow on the phone named Lloyd Novak and he was just so incredibly cool. I was having a little bit of trouble with my Jeep. I wanted a different transmission in it. I had found his advertisement in a magazine in the back of a four-wheel drive magazine. So I called him up and asked him some questions and I was just treated so well. He gave me information and was just you know very kind to me even though I was a real newbie compared to him mm. um, he was an incredible mechanic and machinist uh, and I didn't have the money at the time <laughs> to to buy what I wanted um, but I, I got married we moved to Washington State and saved up my my dollars here and there and then eventually called and hoping for Lloyd to answer the phone he didn't his wife did and sold me the parts that I had been wanting, that he had told me about. And I, and, and she was a little bit, um, what, kind of taciturn on the phone. She was pretty quiet. Mm. And I later learned that he had died uh, in that time period, and, um, and that, that she was, she'd put the company up for sale. So I called back and arranged a meeting, and I, I called my dad, and I said, you know, you'd, you'd always talked about owning your own machine shop, there's one for sale in California, and he knew. He knew of Novak. So we flew out there. I flew from the Northwest. He flew from Utah. We met in Los Angeles and met Barbara Novak and bought the company. And we bought it for $50,000. Wow. And, uh, and didn't get any of the machinery, but we got a lot of the blueprints and notes and 
and consulting and knowledge from Barbara that she agreed to give us. And that was 1999. We opened the doors in 2000. So uh, I, I think I've told some of my employees this. We bought the company in 1999 for $50,000. And sometime in 2021 or somewhere thereabouts, we had a $50,000 day, right, wow. in sales. And of course, you know, the money, the value of money has changed and whatnot. But it was just an interesting uh, threshold to cross for us. Mm. So, wow. anyway, I hope that gives you a picture of Yeah, for sure. Of it. That's crazy. Um, I didn't know that, actually. I didn't know that background. It's really fascinating to know. Um, so did you kind of bring back the blueprints and the notes to cash or wherever you were living at the time? Or did, did you kind of move to California? Yeah, good question. That's interesting you bring that up because we asked Barbara for a piece of advice. We said, hey, we've, you know, we've, we've inked the deal. What do you recommend? Any, any advice for us? She said, yes, get the company out of California. <laughs> and she was at the time very fed up with how hard it was getting to run a business there. And so, and, and that had been our intention, so that wasn't hard advice to follow. But yes, we brought it here to Utah and all the prints, and we wanted to be really faithful to their spirit, right? To the spirit of the company that they had developed. It was really kind of a mom and pop shop. Um, kind of a, you know, fairly pedestrian type little business. And we really hadn't intended for it to get as big as it got. Um, I really just wanted a fun little company to run and, and not consume too much of my, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was passionate about it, but I didn't want it to become my everything. And, and over the years, it has tried to become, has tried to become that. And you really have to push back to balance. But um, yeah, uh, we, we built all of their products as they had built them. We made a few little changes and some improvements where we could. Um, it was pretty tough to beat Lloyd Novak's work, but we did our best too. And I think we've since developed, well, hundreds if not thousands of products at one time I had around four or five thousand designs on my computer wow. that I had done between the year 2000 and 2018 at that time of counting. So uh, I've always loved design work and and uh, and a lot of those made it to market. Wow. And I'd say most have been successful. Some, a few crashed and burned, and some, some never made it off the drawing board. But you can't you can't afford to sell every idea that you have, in my experience. So. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um. So. You mentioned um, that you had to learn a lot, like through machining. You did you ever grow up machining, or did you go to college machining? No, Texas? not at all. I knew my dad was a machinist, but it was something distant for me. It's something he went someplace, somewhere else to do. Mm. He was in, um, you know, he early on he was in, he was making computer tape drives in Colorado. <laughs> he was machining, you know, those reel to reel computer, those old school data systems and then machining parts for hard drives early on when they were the size of a dishwasher, you know, huh. and he later went into aerospace. Huh. Um, and I, I kind of had a, a, a slight concept. When I was building my Jeep during high school and college, I would have a problem. I needed a part. Maybe it's one I couldn't buy. Maybe it was one I just couldn't afford. Mm -hmm. I knew it existed, mm -hmm. but I couldn't, you know, just didn't have the, the cash for it. So my dad would make it out of work on his, you know, after hours and bring it home. It's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Yeah. But even then, I still didn't have a desire to do what he did, hmm. oddly enough. Um, <laughs> I went to college in, and I studied design quite a bit. I had intended to go into architecture. And oh, right. I, I loved, and still do, I still love kind of the built environment, building design and things like that. Um, but that translated in a very odd way into mechanical design. So when the company, I was passionate about Jeeps, I'd worked on Jeeps, I was reasonably good at it. And uh, I just, I just couldn't stop. I was addicted. And so after I got married and graduated from college, I was just not bouncing around. I had, I had good work. I was working at a, at a, a corporation in Portland, Oregon. And during all of my spare time, like if I had a lunch or a break, I was reading about Jeeps at work, you know, on the computer. The internet was fairly new back mm -hmm. then, 1999, and um, I was always reading Jeep forums, and, and like I say, Novak came up for sale. And my intention back then was to do sales and maybe some design. 
Um, and, and it worked that way for a few months. And then the company got busy enough that I had to move to Utah. So we, my wife and I picked up, uh, my dad had been running, my dad and, and other family had been running the company from here, the making side of things, and I'd been doing the selling designing side of things up in Northwest. And we realized that we had to bring those together. I saw my dad machining something one day. He was at a milling machine. In fact, it's the same machine that you were running last week. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> And I was watching what he was doing, and I got absolutely hooked. He went home for the evening, and I had a project I needed to do for a customer, and I basically mimicked what I saw him doing, and I never have stopped since. Really? It just captured me, and that's kind of one of my happiest places. It can be terribly frustrating, of course, like like anything, but I, I, love, I love machining and, and the surrounding uh, topics, so... I hope that's not too long of an answer, Lou. No, that's good. I love it. There's okay. so much I could pick out from there, but I really want to get on with um, uh, your work ethic and how it is to, how it is being a boss. Are there pros and cons? Because you have, I don't know the exact number of employees you have, but you have quite a few. Well, so let's see. We're a group of 32, 33, 30, I believe, at 30. this point. Yeah. So, you know, still a small company, um, but certainly much, much larger than I had envisioned. Um the pros to being a boss, virtually none. Uh, inherently, there aren't any. I think a lot of people would say, oh, that's what I want to do. I want to <laughs> tell people what to do and sit yeah. back and take all the glory. Or I don't know how people view that. But yeah. um, the only, you, you have to have hierarchies. When I first set up the company, I wanted a very flat, non-hierarchical system. Mm -hmm. And I've still tried to hold to that. Um, but you still need some kind of hierarchy because in the end somebody is accountable and somebody needs to be accountable. Mm -hmm. And that degree of accountability needs to be proportional to the, um, to the what? To the decisions that are being made. So um, the advantage to being a boss is only this. If you, I don't know if I can put this right, but if you're destined to be one, <laughs> I, here's the thing. If you want to be in power, you don't deserve to have it. Mm, wow. I would put it that way. Uh, and I think that's true for business. I think it's true for politics. If you want to boss people around and tell them how to live their lives, I don't think you're suited for it. Mm -hmm. If you realize that a job has to be done and that there's a certain amount of organization and information, meaning to be in formation, to be derived, uh, you, you've got to have somebody kind of take the helm. Um, and there are different kinds of bosses. A lot of, uh, just this might be useful to you. You can break it out into two major types. You have a CEO, mm -hmm. and that's your future thinker. That's somebody who says, this is where the company needs to go. Okay. That probably, though, those, the same two hats can be worn the CEO eventually will divide out from the operating officer or the general manager or the person who's day-to-day -day running the company. So the CEO will say, this is where we need to go. And the general manager or COO will say, well, this is, these are the resources we will use and this is how we'll get there. And the two will work together in, in concert. Um, so uh, I, I guess that's to divide boss into two, two different types. There have been companies um, who have tried to remove the management function. Google famously tried to do this. They tried to remove what, what we called middle management. And I remember as a kid, I would go for rides with my parents in the car. And my dad would put on business tapes. You know, he's trying to always do his, run his business better. And so all these classic business consultants would tell their stories and... And there was a real kind of skepticism coming up about middle managers and what, how wasteful they were in business. And fast forward to the mid-2000s, and Google's trying to get rid of them all. And guess what they did? They went back and hired them all. <laughs> because Amen. you still had to have some layers where work is coordinated. Yeah. So um, to come back and maybe answer your question, um, I don't think anybody should ever seek to be a boss. I definitely think everybody should seek to do the absolute best work they can, and then see where that 
evolves to in their lives. Um, to provide a good or a service to their fellow men and to do it in a way better than, than people and companies did previously. And then if that puts you in a boss location and, and you're good at it and you're good to your people mm-hmm. and you elicit the best response from them, then great, right? Right. But the pressure, the pressures are tremendous and I don't recommend it for most people. Yeah. I often catch myself envying my employees or other people in companies who who can go in at eight or nine o'clock and turn the switch on the work switch on and do their job and do it well right and then switch it off and they go play maybe they right they take the family and go camping they go do really cool things they go on trips they uh they have uh, there are certain freedoms right to being an employee that i catch myself envious of because i bring I try to cordon it off. I try to, to fence it off as best I can. But usually once the kids are in bed, you know, I'll come home. I'll separate from work for a bit. And, but very often I'll pull out a laptop or, uh, or something, and there's always a project that I didn't complete that day that I have to, to do or getting up early in the morning to try to get a head start. So it's, um, it should never be seen as a glamorous lifestyle at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But um, but in the end, I can say I'm blessed, and I feel in ways lucky to be doing what I do. Right. If if that makes sense. That does. Yeah, I guess that's one of the. My dad's told me this for a long time. That's one of the downsides of being an entrepreneur. I guess um, is that you know the you're not working for anyone else. So what you put, what you. Um, what you put on the table is what you're eating. Like, um, hmm. that's right. So it's kind of just like, you know, employees, my dad had a friend that wanted to start a business and cause he was really smart and he did and he started it. He was, the business was being successful and the friend just told him, was like, no, nah, I'm done with that. And went back to his nine to five. Interesting. My dad's like, why? And he's like, I liked going in, having nothing on my mind and clocking in at nine o'clock. My, I'm doing work till five o'clock. I walk, once I walk out of my office, no more work for until tomorrow. So he got to see both sides of that equation. and Yeah. You know, it's like Thomas Sowell says. He says there's no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Mm. <laughs> and that's so true yeah. for this topic and, and thousands of others. So. Yeah. I think it just depends on the person. Um, okay, this is something I wanted to ask you. My dad mentioned that you love reading books. Um, what are your top three books... And what have you learned specifically that has helped your life? Oh my gosh, the top three. Well, um, this comes with a confession. I'm a bibliophile, but not an amazing reader like I used to be. I used to read a lot more than I do now because of the lifestyle I chose. But I do love books, and we're surrounded by a lot of them that I look forward to reading. And and I know the ideas in each of the books in this library, but I don't... um, I, I can't wait to flesh them all out. But that said, my favorite books, oh my heaven's sake. Well, let's let's look around. Well, so the, there's a set of books up there that I bought in Geneva, Switzerland um, in 1993, yeah. um, Les Miserables. And I bought them in French and I brought them home and went to work. There's four volumes and I think I read them in 1994. And it took me, I think, a chunk of a year, uh, obviously busy in college and doing, but at the end of that, I cried. I don't, I, I don't cry <laughs> hardly ever. And it was just such a stunning, and, I, and, and the funny thing is I don't like fiction that much, mm. but I just got absolutely taken up with it. So the Victor Hugo, Les Miserables, um, let's glance around and see if... Uh, See if what other ones are in here. Um, it, well, maybe as far as business books go, one that affected me deeply when I was uh, a freshman in college, I read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Oh. And you know, you have to know about this, yeah. right? Yeah. There's, there's probably okay. copies in your house. I've read The Seven Habits for Highly Effective Teens before. Right on. What did you think good. about it? Was it good? I loved it. Yeah, it was probably, what, two years, two, three years ago. So it's been a while, but I'm definitely going to take a look at the Seven Habits for Highly Effective Adults. It's so interesting how many people who've read all the business books keep going back to that one. Mm, Really? 
and, and not just business, but it's interesting because it kind of merges the ideas of life and business and, and all those things together. I think those ideas have made me a bit of a better parent, I hope, and better relationships. And, um, and certainly uh, it's helped out in, in business. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, the third book. I think Tyler sent you with this question because he knew how much it would fluster me to have to yeah. narrow it down so <laughs> much. Um, oh, gosh. Well, yeah. Richard Weaver's Ideas Have Consequences. That was a book I bought in 1998. I'd just gotten married. My wife and I had this little apartment. We had very few books, right? We had some. Um, and our dates, because we were... I don't know, somewhat poor and <laughs> would be to go to the Barnes and Noble bookstore not far from our apartment and just kind of browse the books um, and maybe take, you know, go to a movie or something like that. And man, I look back on that time very fondly. But one of the books I came across, I don't know how it caught my eye. It wasn't in the philosophy section, which I've always enjoyed. Um, and it was Richard Weaver's uh, Ideas Have Consequences. I ate that thing up. I had my highlighter out. And it really cemented, um, it really cemented me as a conservative libertarian or conservatarian mm. or a paleo libertarian, whatever you want to call it, a paleo conservative or whatever. I had kind of been through the college thing and, and I was exposed to all the ideas there and I'd been around a lot of people from all sides and, but that book resonated within me so much, I just knew I had the heart of a, of a libertarian, I guess. And that was kind of later fleshed out as time went on. And, and you see the amount of headwinds that, well, this goes back to people wanting to be bosses in, in politics, for example, where they want to control the lives of others. They want to, they want to put their foot on the market and put their... Uh, kind of put the squeeze on voluntary transactions between people. And as I watch that and I, you're already fighting enough headwinds in business mm -hmm. to have them heaped on additionally through uh, taxation and through the paperwork of taxation, through, uh, through regulation, which doesn't really regulate anything. It, it really most often just gets in the way. But anyway, so... I don't. I won't go down that road too far. I don't know how broad-based your listeners are, and I don't want to yeah. alienate any of them, of course. But, mm -hmm. uh, um, but certainly that book. And and the thing also about that book is the vocabulary in there is so rich. Oh, yeah. I it sent me to the dictionary quite a bit. Mm. And when you go to the dictionary, there's my fourth favorite. Take that, Tyler. Uh, the dictionary is my other favorite book. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that sends you to the dictionary is sending you searching for the idea behind that word mm -hmm. and you can't learn just a definition without learning the idea and uh and that uh, that book and so many others have just blown the world of ideas up in my head that that i feel very grateful about so wow i'm gonna be giving those a listen uh uh well I'll read them definitely sometime coming up um borrow mine yeah yeah i'd love to um okay what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? Oh, man. Um, people do. Um, I'm not, I don't, I wouldn't classify myself as like an amazing, I'm not a great people person, but, but I love to watch people and they, they do inspire me. What they, what they're able to accomplish both individually and in groups, it is really cool. Um, and that might be people in the spiritual realm, right? In the, you know, in the realm of, you know, great teachers and leaders in that world. That, and, and you kind of, I grew up kind of steeped in that world, I guess. Um, kind of in a more religious world. I, not too far from you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it was, what was interesting to me is how many people, those people. So let's say you were listening to a really good talk. Yeah. Who were the people that they're referring to? You know, they would quote Shakespeare, they would quote C.S. Lewis, they would quote the great poets, they would quote, you know, the, you know, the great old prophets and stuff like that. And so it almost sets up this network, this web of people and ideas who are referencing each other and who in, in, in a sense of ideas are related to each other. So that, 
listening and watching them and trying to be like them inspires me to do better. Um, I was raised by two really good parents. Obviously, I talked about them a little bit. Uh, when you have two parents that make the choice to believe in their children, and that is a choice. I never heard anything like, why can't you be more like so-and-so? That was never their language. It was more, you can do it. We believe in you. You've got the capabilities, right? If you put in the work, if you, you know, if there's something you want, go for it. There's no reason why you can't do it. And so when you're raised in a, uh, a fertile environment like that, uh, that's inspiring. So I draw constant uh, inspiration from that. Their voices still echo. To this day, there, there's not a day I don't think about something my parents, some lesson they tried to teach me. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to have to throw something in. Yeah, go ahead. I figured out what being a father was. It's going around, turning, turning off lights and picking up toys and telling your children things that they will not appreciate for 20 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so I... <laughs> Yeah, it's so funny. I know they probably felt like I wasn't listening. And and I probably didn't think I was listening either. <laughs> right. And then years later to be to have those voices and that advice uh coming into play. It's it's great. Mm -hmm. It's powerful that you can finally uh kind of see their efforts cuz it's hard when you're young. Like I mean it takes me like like, I think back to when I was little, and my dad's like, no, you've already had dessert to, tonight. You can't have more dessert. And in the time, I'm like, Dad, come on. Like, but now that I look back, I'm like, oh, that's such a noble thing that he was doing for me. Like, obviously, he wanted... Or I remember there was multiple times I was like, Dad, can I get this? And he's like, save up and save up your money, and then you can buy it. And I was like, oh, can you just buy it for me? It's only $5 or whatever. Which is chump change for your dad. Right. But he was trying to teach you... Economics, or I would yeah. assume, right? Would you say that's right? Right. He was trying to teach me hard work and how the world works. Um, like, in the moment, he probably would, would have loved for him to pull out his wallet, buy me, the, buy me the toy car or whatever, and be like, there you go, and I'd be happy. I'd be like, thanks, Dad. But instead, he was like, you know what? We'll come back when you have enough money. And then it taught me what hard work is like and that you have to work for everything you have. And I think that's one thing that... And when I look at my life now, I see things that my dad's telling me that I'm like, Really? But then when I hear examples like this that you tell me, and I'm grateful for it, that um, I can kind of look back and think, you know, in a couple of years, I'll be looking back. So thank you for mentioning that. Well, I mean, it kind of prompts me to ask you a question. I've been curious about this. You've got this library of podcasts that you've built up and you've had these interviews with people. I am super curious to hear what you, I guess if you could summarize some of the things you've learned from them or things that you've heard consistently from them that you've, picked up in your own life so there can I turn this around and ask sure. you that because yeah. I really want to know no yeah um definitely that's a good question because I've mostly I've interviewed people that are older than me all of them have been older than me except for uh my three younger siblings and I think that's definitely one of the I think almost every single interviewer has said I wish I would have listened to my parents when I was younger and I wish I could have been more open-minded. Oh, interesting. Okay. And I think also, let's see, I'm trying to think of particular things. Um, yeah, open-mindedness to advice. Because, yeah, almost all of them, I'll get to a question later in the podcast, but um, when you think about your 17-year-old self, um, they would say, you know, I wish I wasn't as caught up in myself. You know, hmm. you get really prideful in high school. You know, a lot of times you'll feel like, you're winning in life. A lot of times you feel like you're failing, but either way, you need to not compare yourself to others. I think that's one of the biggest things that I've taken from this, um, from an interview, is comparing yourself to others is not good. You can set um, goals from other people. Like, I can see how you are um, working with people. And I'm like, that's a, that's a good goal for me to have. But I don't want to be like, oh, Eric's why is Eric so good at, you know, talking to people and, uh, having all these employees and I shouldn't compare my, that to myself. I just set that as a goal. Um, and I think, let's see another one. Um, 
Mm. Self-love has been a thing that's been mentioned a lot. Interesting, okay. Especially huh. when I get... And I feel like there's a, there's a trend. You know, for some people it's just different. But um, I guess, I guess I shouldn't say trend. But some of the people I mention, I'll be like, if you could turn back time and talk to your 17-year-old self, what would you say? And they're like, you know, I'd just give him a hug and say, you know, it, it's going to be okay. You should just just keep going and believe in yourself. And just oh. know that you're you're good how you are. You don't need to be what the world thinks you should be. That's a powerful one that one time someone mentioned. Huh. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're in a really unique spot. The fact that you've chosen to do this and the fact that you've gained early on a taste for maybe and maybe a hunger for the wisdom of the world. This mm-hmm. it'll be really interesting to see how you can parlay this and everything else you're doing into mm-hmm. future Lewis. I'll be keeping an eye on you. So awesome. <laughs> Okay, that kind of leads me to my next question, I guess. I would like to ask you, um, what is the best compliment you have ever received, and why did that mean a lot? Man, people have been so kind to me in my life. Um, but I, w- I would go back to the ones that have, that have lasted. And it's, f- well, here, um, you said something a, a moment ago about kind of being selfish in our teenage years, right? Mm -hmm. And some of that, in a way, is kind of a natural outgrowth because you're busy, I mean, it's a very accelerated time of your life and you're establishing your persona. Mm -hmm. You're establishing character, personality, and persona during your teenage years. And in a way, you're kind of in the self-build mode, Mm -hmm. trying to figure out who you are, where you fit in the world, what you're good at, Mm -hmm. right? And um, so selfishness is not good per se, but there kind of does have to be a little bit of focus on the self during those years. And I love what you said about, you know, instead of going back and giving one 17-year-old self hard advice to just say, mm-hmm. hey, man, you're all right. You're doing good. Yeah. Keep up the good work or something like that. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is great. Um, in, terms of, um, in terms of the nicest compliment, I, I would say my mom's belief in me, which I kind of brought up a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. She just always said, you're, you're going to do great things. And she said that from a place of sincerity. There, I don't really think I was doing anything as a child to give her any indication that I would do great things. Maybe, maybe she saw something I didn't. But I, I look back on what a clumsy child I was and what a, you know, what a goof I was. I didn't. But, but for some reason, that carried. But I, there's, been a, there's been other people who have said, hey, you're good at, you're good at this. And, and just the act of saying that, um, you know, hey, you're, you're good at fixing things and you're, uh, you're good at understanding how the world works or whatever, I, I, that absorbs very easily into the youthful mind. Mm-hmm. And they weren't lying about it. That's what made it a good compliment. I kind of was good at those things. And, and they, that helped me put some stakes down as to who I was and what I was good at because I, I do have, I don't want to sound like Liam Neeson too much, but I have a particular set of skills, <laughs> but going through those teenage and teenage years in your twenties are those is, are the times when you're identifying those things that you're good at and you might as well run with them. Right. In other words, Michael Phelps should swim. Mm-hmm. He's built like a swimmer physically. You might as well go with what you, right? Like he could figure out football. He could be, you know, he could probably be a decent basketball player, but you might as well take every advantage you've been given, right? As a, as a, I don't, if you, you, you could call it a birthright or you could call it an inheritance or genetics or, or whatever it may be, um, you know, kind of this idea of the talents. And um, you might as well run with what you've been given and, and amplify it. Without becoming too cloistered. Yeah. <laughs> Stay real well-rounded. Well but No, that's good. I definitely like how you said that. Um, I guess when someone repeats something, you know, you're going to do great things, you you believe in it, and you're like, you know, yeah, I, I am going to do great things in it, and I guess that's kind of kind of helped shape your life. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. And, and listen, I've worked with people and have hired people who I've had to deprogram. Because a teacher or a parent or some other important person in their life told them, you're not going to amount to anything, or, uh, or you're, you're no good at this. Or, and, 
and in my world, in our, I guess, our world that we share together at work, um, we're in the maker's world. People make things, and it's, it, is a, it is a subset of, the, of human skills. And um, a lot of guys, and they are often, most often guys, will sit in classrooms for years. How many hours? Is it 12,000 or 17,000 hours of, Something like that. of instruction? And they're antsy? Mm-hmm. And their attention spans are terrible, and and they get told through, either overtly or through implication, that that they're no good mm-hmm. at school, or they're no good at smart things, quote unquote. And then they'll tell me in an interview, they'll, they'll and I'll ask them, I'll say, how did you get into this world of making things? How did you figure out you were good with your hands or your mind in a spatial mechanical sense? And they'll they'll say, I was just. Uh, I was just always working with things with with my hands and 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 they'll, then they'll tell me, but I felt like a dumb student or I felt like I wasn't intelligent or whatever. And you and I've had to deprogram some of these guys and teach them, help them teach themselves. They're really smart people, mm-hmm. but they have a an intelligence that expresses itself in a different way than we think of in our modern world. Right. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I don't know if you've if you've heard this story, but there was this uh, um, this student that took the SAT, and he got he was like a low GPA student. He's like, oh, whatever, I'm just gonna go take it. Woke up without studying, went and took the ACT or SAT or ACT. I don't quite remember. It's basically the same thing. And then, um, he went, he took it, and then like it takes a couple weeks to get your score back. He gets his score back. He didn't get one question wrong which is like pretty unheard of like very rarely do people even get close to that score with studying taking it retaking it hmm. and he got in he was like wow and everyone's like wow like good job no way and he's like i didn't know i was that smart like how'd that happen and then he goes on he like starts speaking at places he started businesses like he's just this super hmm. strong guy and then like mentally strong and he's like has so much self confidence in himself, and then they they looked and they saw that um, there was a fluke in the grading system. Oh wow! And he got like less than fifty percent. <laughs> but since he believed in himself so much, wow! <laughs> he went on and did all this stuff, and then they told him like, you know what? You actually only got like forty percent on that that test when he thought he got a hundred, and he was like, wow! And now it goes to show just like how much mentally like you know if your teacher gives you a grade of a low grade you know you think oh i'm a i'm a d student or i'm a i'm a b student and it kind of sets your like personal um intelligent level but you know he just I, needed he just needed a boost huh yeah he just needed to believe in himself that he was smart and i just think that's fascinating that story i always think about no that is great well i do think People like societies should go through a renaissance in their lives. They should have an awakening period. Um, Or several. I mean, why not? (laughs) Shoot for the stars. But, um, yeah, just like our society went through this wonderful expansion in, you know, arts and language and engineering, right? All the the things. Um, If a person can bring themselves through a period like that and, and, and discovering who they are and what they have to offer society, man, that can be... An amazing, amazing time, and it'll it'll reverberate through the rest of their lives if they do. So that's that's a cool story. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, have you had a res- renaissance moment in your life? Yeah, yeah, I think a couple. Okay. So I think when I was in my late teens, um, I started to realize that uh, I don't know. My my mind was just coming together. Um, there's quite a bit of time during my adolescence where I felt like just very plain and kind of a screw up even um and when i was 17 18 19 especially those years were really uh, a big change because i started to be interested in history and books and ideas and and i started to form a vision of myself outside of this system meaning kind of outside of the school and social system that is trying to trying to mold us i guess Mm -hmm. 
and I guess in a way, maybe breaking out of that a little bit and, and discovering the world and parts of the world on my own was that way. Um, I found myself kind of cleaning my life up a little bit and, and uh, getting on a truer path in terms, of, um, in terms of where I wanted to go and who I wanted to be. So yeah, I would say so. And then I would say, um, certainly, uh, you know, going to Europe and, and, uh, and uh, serving in my church for a couple of years, like a lot of people in our area do, right? That had its own renaissance, and that was interesting because I had kind of a cultural renaissance. I got to see and be among the European people. Um, I learned French. I was getting D's in French in high school. Okay. I couldn't, for the life of me, I couldn't get a good grade in French, and I couldn't grasp it. And then I got out there and really buckled down, and it, man, I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And I was, uh, I ended up, training a missionary fairly early. I'd been out there for four months and I had to take on a new companion who was new in the field and right and so I really had to uh, but it it, it was it surprised me to learn a language that fast Mm -hmm. and I have never stopped loving the French language or other romance you know Roman based languages Um, so yes and then a little bit through college and then kind of rediscovering a little bit my um, you know, as among all the f- fancy academians in college, <laughs> but kind of rediscovering that sort of gritty mechanical side too, and kind of having seen that duality. You know, I, I enjoyed the academic; it was great, but I enjoyed going and getting greasy and shredding. You know, tearing a car apart and mm-hmm. and even getting it back together. Mm-hmm. So that was a little bit of a renaissance. And then when I when we when I bought this company, uh, I, that was a forced renaissance. I really had, <laughs> I had to level up in a big way to keep up with what I had bitten off. <laughs> um, to the listeners, um, so Eric served a church, uh, mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I've had many people talk about the church in detail but on my podcast, but um, when he talks about how he didn't understand French and then on his mission he did, he will Sorry, he didn't um, quite fully, you know, he wasn't a good French student. And then um, on when he went on his mission, you know, he really fell in love with it. And that's what we call the power of tongues. And is that, I don't know if there was maybe a moment on your mission that you kind of really like, my dad has an experience where he kind of just like one day he like really like understood it well. And he learned an oriental language, right? He learned Korean. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So was there, do you remember a specific moment or was it kind of gradual? Because I know both can happen. Yeah, well, okay, I'll contrast it. Um, I worked hard learning the language prior to going to Europe. Um, After being on a, being awake for what would have been 24 hours, there we are on a train between France and Switzerland and trying to strike up a conversation with some students on the train. And it was just, it was just a slaughter. It was abysmal. I, I, I felt so incapable of communicating. Mm. It was a level of frustration that to this day I can still, still feel, right? About two months later, I remember having a conversation just uh, uh, in a town called Annecy, France. It was my first town. And it's like, wait a minute, they understand me and I understand them. And it was kind of a neat moment. I had a French trainer, by the way. And he was ex-military. He had trained in the French army. He was hardcore. <laughs> he worked me into the ground physically, <laughs> linguistically, spiritually, all the things. I mean, and he was really ahead of his pack. Amazing guy. And by trying to keep up with him, uh, I, I, I had to level up pretty quick. Um, so yes, I had that moment. And then pretty soon I caught myself writing in French and I was able to write letters and communicate with the locals, uh, both in written and verbal form. And, and I remember having a moment where it's like, Hey, I can, I'm, I'm not too bad at this. Mm-hmm. So yes. Wow. That's a long yes to your question. I'm sorry, no. man. I just go on and on. Man. No, it's perfect. <laughs> I love it. Um, it gives me so much more depth. Um, Okay. If you could turn back time and talk to your 17-year-old self, what would you tell him and why? Man, in light of what you were telling me earlier, um, 
Man, that's a really good question. It's funny because you, unless, unless life has time to percolate a little bit, it's almost like what I said earlier when an adult tells a youth something, you don't appreciate it for some time. But if I could say something that would make an impact, um, by that time I was already pretty dedicated and I think a fairly hard worker. I had a, I worked a lot of hours. So I'd, after school, I'd go work till nine o'clock at a grocery store. And so I think I had a work ethic back then. I don't think I'd tell myself to work harder. Honestly, I would probably tell myself to pull back a little bit and stop and smell the roses. I don't, I feel like once I turned about 15 or 16, it's just been go, go, go my whole life. And I know where that comes from. I, my mother (laughs) and my dad to some degree. So I, I, maybe I came by it honestly for lack of a better term, but if I had to say something, I would say stop and smell the roses a little bit. Um, it's funny. I was in an airport yesterday. Uh, I had dropped somebody off and I was just biding time to meet the rest of my family down in Salt Lake. So I just opened up my laptop at the airport and I was just kind of watching people, which is the airport's the best place to do that. Right. (laughs) And I watched a bunch of young guys stroll in and they had ski bags, you know, they had Mm -hmm. their skis and their gear and, and, and they all looked like they were military. It looks like they were maybe on weekend leave and they were going to do some skiing if I had to assess what the situation was. And they were just having sort of this jocular good time. They were just joking with each other, probably in their mid early twenties, I would say, and just having a great time with each other. And I think, you know, I kind of missed out on some of that. I didn't stop to cultivate in some of the relationships that maybe I should have and stop and have more fun and really soak that time up. Mm. I was always striving for something. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I confess that I'm materialistic, so I don't tend towards, um, just hanging out with people and quote unquote wasting time, but it's not wasting time. The intellectual part of me recognizes that those human relationships and those friendships are very good to cultivate. I, I should have done that more. Interesting. I still maintain contact and friendships from those times, right. and I'm grateful for that, but I could have done better. Wow. That's fascinating. That's something I haven't really heard that much of, you know, coming from people that maybe did the opposite, where they spent too much time just not doing anything, and then they feel like they get behind um, you know, work-wise and intellectually, but that's really interesting. Um, I thank you for, I thank you for hopping on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. That's, it's fun. It's fun. I'd talk to you. I'd talk to you in any situation, but it's, we'll have to do a part two sometime. I'd be happy to. Awesome. Any, any time, just ask me. All right. We'll do. Just like that, ladies and gentlemen, that's Eric Forsberg. Um, I hope you guys can learn something from this and see how, the intellectual man Eric is and learn about his hard work and ethic and, um, you know, take something from this and apply it into your life. Just like that, we'll catch you later. Bye.